We Infuse Podcast, episode number 27. Welcome to the We Infuse Podcast. My name is Dylan McCabe, and in every episode, we give you a behind-the-scenes look at the Infusion Center landscape, and we give you tips, tools, and a roadmap so that you can grow and sustain a successful infusion practice. And in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Katie Morgan. She's the Director of Quality and Standards with the National Infusion Center Association, and we are going to be discussing the biggest challenge facing the Infusion Center landscape today, and we're not just going to discuss it philosophically. We're going to talk about real issues in the insurance world that are putting pressure on providers and patients. We're going to talk about some real scenarios and what the National Infusion Center Association is doing about it and how you can get involved. There's really good stuff in this episode. I think you're really going to like it. So let's just dive right in now to my discussion with Katie Morgan. All right. As I stated, we have special guest Katie Morgan on the show today. So Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Uh, you're right, <laughs> virtually. And at the at the time of the recording of this podcast, we are all dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. And so Katie's at home. So if anybody hears dogs or doorbell or anything <laughs> crazy like that, that's what's going on. We're all working from home. That's right. Well, Katie, we're, we were excited to have you on the show. I know you've been on before and you are um, working with the uh, National Infusion Center Association. So I want to just give you a a minute to kind of share your background and what your role is at the NICA before we dive into our big topics, like the big challenges facing the infusion center world. (laughs) Sure. So I have been with the NICA um, as an employee since January. Prior to that, I was involved in in different capacities with um, advisory committees. I was on their board um, and, you know, previously was just a a fan, I guess you'd say. Um, I've been a nurse for 12 years, pretty much always an infusion nurse. Um, initially I did some, some inpatient oncology, um, which is, you know, very infusion focused as well. Um, and then went to outpatient infusion. And most recently prior to joining the NICA, I worked for an infusion management company, um, as their director of clinical operations uh, for their infusion sites, um, across the country, really. Yeah. So you've got a really neat background as far as going. You've been an infusion nurse. You've been on the business side of it, working for an infusion management company. You you really bring a, a neat background to the NICA. And since you were a fan, you know, you've, you <laughs> felt that stirring inside of you to be a part of something big that made a difference. Kind of tell our listeners about your role with the NICA now. So now I serve as the Director of Quality and Standards. Um, the NICA last year at our first annual meeting launched the first edition of the standards of care for in-office infusion, um, which was really the first of its kind, the first document out there um, providing guidance for infusion providers. Um, So that was my first big project with NICA. I did that um, prior to being an employee just on their advisory committee, and I loved it. That's what I love to do um, is, you know, look through current literature, come up with evidence-based care guidelines. Um, it's, it's, I'm just a big nerd and that's what I love to do. So um, that's what I was hired to do. Now, when COVID came um, just a couple of months into that position, um, you know, we kind of took a turn and focused on helping infusion providers navigate this, this you know, public health emergency while providing continuity of care for their patients. Um, so that has, you know, been a a huge project, but it's been really rewarding. We've been um, able to help infusion centers uh, stay open, find the supplies that they need to be able to keep treating patients, help patients find 
new infusion centers um, because their you know care was disrupted. Maybe their their current site closed or um, you know couldn't have find staffing or supplies, things like that. Um, so it's it's really been all hands on deck at you know with Team NICA to make sure that infusion patients still have access to the care that they need. That's great. Yeah, NICA does such an incredible job. So you were working on the standards of care before you were a paid full time employee. Correct. Yes, wow. I. Um, that's kind of how I discovered NICA. I um, the infusion management company I was with was a startup. And um, so, you know, it's kind of day one, I sit down at the computer and say, okay, you know, where, where's the rule book? Show me how to do this right. Um, and I, I couldn't really find that, which was surprising. Working in healthcare, we have standards for everything. Um, there's always a policy about something. And I couldn't find what I was looking for. Um, and then when we ran into some trouble um, or challenge, I guess I'll say, with um, regulations with the, the Board of Pharmacy in the state I'm in, I reached out to, I found the National Infusion Center Association, and I thought, well, these guys must know the answer. Um, so I got on the phone with Brian Nyquist, the executive director, who's now my boss, um, and asked him you know, these questions and said, where, where are these standards I'm looking for? Um, and he said, yeah, they, they don't exist, but we definitely need them. Um, and he'd been at that point working on you know, getting the, um, his current advisory committee to, to draft those and go through that process. Um, it's quite a process. And just wasn't making the headway that he had wanted to see, but he said, "Hey, <laughs> if you're interested, um, you know, maybe you can help." So that was really the beginning of our conversation. And my first advisory committee meeting was down in Texas, um, you know, with that advisory committee group coming up with the first draft of the standards. Did not know that. So, note to listeners: if you want to land an awesome job. <laughs> Do a, knock it out of the park with a big project on the side without getting paid. And next exactly. thing you know, they'll ask you to join the team. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. So for people listening to this that may not know, I mean, uh, even for providers, but especially for people who are thinking about getting into the infusion center space, why is that important? I know we've covered it a little bit in the past, but why are standards of care, this this big project that you guys took on, why is it important and what, what what's in it for me? What does it matter for me if I'm an infusion center operator? Operator. Sure. So, you know, the the mission of the National Infusion Center, excuse me, the National Infusion Center Association is to, um, you know, provide access to patients to, for infusion therapy treatments. But we don't want patients to just have access to any infusion therapy treatment. It needs to be high quality, you know, safe care. Um, without standards, there's no um, benchmark. There's no, you know, yardstick to measure up to um, for patients to know that they can trust they're going to get the best care and the same standard of care wherever they are. If they're in a hospital outpatient infusion center, if they're in, you know, the two chair infusion suite in their rheumatologist's office, if they're at a big freestanding infusion center, um, you know, the standard of care is the standard of care and patients need to be able to have the same expectations of safety wherever they are. Um, And without those standards, there's nothing to point to when something, you know, there's an unfortunate outcome, something happens, Um, a patient, you know, is injured or something like that, Um, you know, you need to be able to point to this document that's, you know, evidence-based, there's literature to support the practices. Um, And we say, you know, this is the right way to do it. This is not the right way to do it. This met the standard, this didn't. Um, It just, it really sets the, the, a level playing field for everyone. It's so good. And, you know, 
Uh, I've been in so many infusion centers around the U.S. and seen so many different scenarios where it looked like the you know they're taking great care of the patients and the nurses are happy and everything's clean and organized and you can tell that the team that's you know serving the patients there just really has everything all their ducks in a row and have great uh, great processes and then I've seen it to where it looks like the you know the patient's chairs are like you know being hurt it's like almost <laughs> I think of like cattle being herded in this these tight quarters all these chairs mm-hmm. are smushed together and there's a refrigerator right there and then there's a sink and I, I remember one time I saw oatmeal in the bowl in the sink like <laughs> leftovers I mean it's just like it's so good to have standards of care and have have somebody to say this is what it should look like and it should be really good. So it's just awesome that you guys took that on and and I'll definitely we can mention the the website. I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with NICA, but we can mention the website at the end, make sure people know how to get in touch with you guys. But um that's just great. Right. So that so that got you um heavily involved with NICA and then and then leading into that, I'm sure you've just been inundated with what the hot topics are now it's a it's a constantly evolving landscape so what are the big challenges facing the infusion center now today in 2020 you know it's interesting before um sort of being on the outside of nica i knew a lot about what they did for, as far as resource development um you know creating materials for patients and for providers um i i knew a lot of that side of it but a huge part of the work that they do is um, advocacy, especially legislative advocacy, but also you know uh, health policy advocacy, there are always, I mean, always, always, except for maybe at the peak of this uh, COVID crisis when all the legislative committees and um, you know no one's in session, so maybe the the pressure's off a little bit. But there is are always threats to the infusion industry. Um, you know these medications, particularly biologics, are amazing therapies. They're really effective for the patients that need them, um, but they're really expensive to produce. You know, they're they're made from non-human cells. It's quite fascinating um, and quite expensive. So insurance companies are always looking for ways to, you know, control their costs, which you understand. Um, it makes sense. But they look at this class of specialty medications and they look for savings opportunities. Um, they usually do it through what they are referred to as utilization management strategies. Um, you know, some of them make sense and some of them really just end up creating access barriers for patients. So that is a lot of what the NICA team does is, you know, identifies those challenges and then um, works to address them. So whether that's, you know, letter writing campaigns, petitions, um, things like that to, to push back against these payer policies that make it hard for patients to get the care that they need and hard for their providers to, to provide that care. So for managers of infusion centers or people listening to this podcast, what's what's a big piece of advice you would have for them as far as this big challenge of how payers are payers are manipulating the landscape and what it means to the patient and what it also means to the owner of the infusion center or the operator of the infusion center? What's what's a big piece of advice you would have for them? Um, my my big piece of advice and my big ask would be for them to get involved, um, get involved with NICA. We're working on um, an advocacy action toolkit to make it really easy to get involved. You know, we know how busy, you know, I know firsthand how busy these infusion providers are, um, how much time they spend on the phone and, you know, administrative, the administrative burden of pushing back against even just one specific, you know, prior authorization request for one patient or, or one denial. Um, so t- the thought of, 
you know, fighting the whole system, I think is very intimidating. And, and people, patients and providers just feel like they maybe don't know how to go about it. So um, Nike is working to make that a lot easier by developing this toolkit. Um, you know, providers can sign up to, for our newsletters. And then when there is an issue affecting that might affect them, um, you know, one of the things with these payers is when one payer successfully puts in place a utilization management policy, um, then the others follow suit. So just because it's a policy in, say, Tennessee and it's not affecting, you know, the provider in Colorado, um, it doesn't mean they shouldn't sort of perk up their ears and pay attention. Um, when these issues happen and our newsletters go out, then um, we often have petitions or sign-on letters. We just did one um, about some restrictive payer policies um, from United Healthcare and had put out a letter with a sign-on petition. I think we had 375 providers sign on that letter, um, representing almost 200 practices, uh, you know, pushing back saying, hey, this, this isn't okay. You know, this um, policy doesn't make sense. It's not clinically appropriate and it's going to restrict our ability to care for patients. Um, and it, you know, we did that. It was a, a collaborative effort with stakeholders all throughout the infusion community. Um, and that policy actually, you know, they are not implementing that policy. So it's, it, it works, you know, but we have to get involved and you have to speak up. Um, it's, you can't just take for granted that someone else will fight those battles for you. Um, you know, really you need to, to get involved, share your stories, share patient stories, um, you know, really establish that human connection. It, it really does make a difference. Okay. So let me get this straight. There was a utilization policy that was, that was going to be, you know, that was going to come out from a, a major payer. Mm-hmm. And you guys sent a letter out to your list, to a lot of providers, said, sign the petition. We're going to take this to the key stakeholders in the insurance world and get them to try to get them to not proceed with this thing. And then they relented from their decision? Yep. So there were three different parts of the policy that um, you know we had concerns with. Two of them, they said they were not going to implement anymore. And the third, they said they're not going to implement at this time and they'll revisit it. Um, basically, you know, it's on hold until further notice. Um, wow. That's so, yeah. incredible because I see, it you is. know, I mean, the first thing that comes to my head is like a petition that comes across my newsfeed and Facebook. And <laughs> right. Like, and you think, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like sign the thing, you know, protect the dogs or do whatever. And you think, well, what am, what is it really going to do? You know, right. if I sign this or um, there's some political, you know, thing, but, but you guys are actually bringing about results that impact people's lives. And so, can you share a story of a real incident, a real case study where some policy like this has come out where you guys have pushed for it or, or, or maybe it was too late and it came out and it negatively impacted providers and negatively impacted the infusion, infusion landscape, just so we can kind of take this out of the philosophical and give a real life incident of this? Sure. I mean, this, these I think that's a really important question because that is, you know, that is what we all want to shout from the rooftops is that these are real patients, you know, with real lives, livelihoods, families. Um, it, it, it's not an abstract. It's, it's a real person. Um, you know, I, in my years of bedside nursing, um, before I was more on the administrative side, you know, I would hear from the patients that, um, you know, I, this such and such medication was prescribed to me, but my insurance company won't pay for it. Um, so I had to 
take this, that, the other thing. Um, and, you know, in the process of a patient not being able to get the medication that they want, so say it's a prior authorization requirement, um, step therapy policies are especially harmful to patients. Those are sometimes they're called fail first policies. So patients have to try and fail multiple medications before their insurance company will cover the medication that their provider wants them to take. Um, and, you know, that decision is made between the patient and the provider based on all of the lifestyle factors, all of the socioeconomic factors, everything that they know about that patient's situation. Um, that's why they chose that medication. And then when a patient can't get it, um, they're forced to try and fail, which means suffering the symptoms of their disease for months or, you know, years. Um, and really that's, you know, not an exaggeration. There are step therapy policies that require a patient to try as many as, you know, a policy I was just working on a response letter to yesterday requires um, patients to try six different therapies before they could receive this treatment for their, um, it was a plaque psoriasis um, indication. So each of those required a three-month trial. So, you know, how long is that for that patient to have to step through trying and failing these medications while their symptoms get worse before they can just finally get to that that treatment that their provider chose for them in the first place. It just, um, you know, and especially if you think about it from a cost savings perspective, it it really doesn't make sense. It's really counterintuitive how forcing patients to try and fail equally expensive treatments sometimes can be a, a cost savings. Which is so crazy. I mean, nothing else, nothing, ma- no major service in life exists that way. Like the right? water company doesn't go, well, we've got six variations of water. They're all pretty crappy. We've got one that works really well, but we don't want you to try that one yet. We know it's clean. We know it's processed the right way, but we've got these other five that, you know, we've cut some corners on how to keep the water clean. We want you to drink those first. Make sure you don't get sick first. Right. Or, or drink that one. Maybe you'll like that, you know, that, that dirty brownish water. Maybe that'll be good enough for you. Um, and then we don't have to waste, you know, or, or use that, that nice clean water on you. Um, Brian, our executive director, has an analogy he uses, which is just so appropriate to me. He said, it's like saying everyone has to drive a sedan unless you can try it and prove that it doesn't work for your family. You can't have a minivan. You can't have a truck. Everyone has to drive this car unless you can show why you shouldn't. You know, it, <laughs> we would all think that's ridiculous. Um, but that's that's what we're doing with healthcare. That's so interesting. And so... And it's easy to see from the patient side, but let's say for the provider or somebody who, you know, maybe it's a provider that is thinking about starting an infusion practice. What does this mean for them? You know, uh, for the patient, it's it's clear they really get the raw end of the deal. But for the provider, <laughs> sometimes, I mean, let's face it, sometimes people are thinking, well, how is this going to impact my bottom line? Yes, the patient's terribly important, but how does this affect, you know, the dollars and cents area of my business? So it's it's kind of one and the same for providers that are offering infusions um, because it the dollars and cents do affect their patients. You know, another um, utilization management strategy we see a lot of um, really ties providers' hands on where they can get the medications from. They require that they're, you know, obtained from a certain pharmacy, um, a certain specialty pharmacy, maybe a specialty pharmacy owned by that insurance company oftentimes. Um, and the... The soft costs, you know, the administrative burden of going through that um, 
procurement process, it, you would, a provider would have to hire you know, another full-time employee just to manage that in order to you know, have it be successful and not create any treatment delays for patients, um, which they can't, they can't do. They can't afford that. And so if they can't afford to offer infusion services, then they won't be able to offer them anymore. Um, and so patients, you know, have to find somewhere else to go. So if this is a, a widespread problem, um, you run out of treatment locations for patients pretty quickly because there are some therapies that are, you know, appropriate to be given maybe self-injections or home infusion, but certainly not all of them. You know, a lot of these treatments really require close clinical monitoring um, that's, that's best done in an office-based setting. So if a provider can't do that and, you know, remain financially solvent, then they won't be able to offer that service and patients will have even less access to care. So if I understand you correctly, will some of these utilization management strategies affect whether the provider can offer um, biologics in a and in, in bill as far as like a buy-in bill scenario versus a specialty pharmacy scenario? Right, right. Yep. Gotcha. Because, yeah, the, um, the buy-in bill scenario, you know, providers can purchase the medication, have it in stock on their shelves, ready to administer when the patient's ready. Specialty um, comes from a specialty pharmacy for that patient. Um, you know, there's also a, a huge amount of waste associated with specialty pharmacy. Um, if a patient is prescribed a new treatment and they need their loading doses, so they usually get maybe three doses um, fairly close together a few weeks apart before they space out to their regular every few months infusion, um, a lot of times the specialty pharmacy will send those first three doses together um, and they'll be administered over a period of like, 12, 14 weeks. If the patient receives that first infusion and then, you know, can't tolerate it, maybe they have an allergic reaction or, you know, they move away or any number of things interrupt that, um, that loading dose and make it so the patient's not going to get the drug anymore. That drug can't be used for another patient. It can't be returned. The patient can't get a refund. Um, it really just sits on the infusion provider's shelf, um, until it expires and then it needs to be discarded. And that's, you know, depending on the drug, tens of thousands of dollars of waste that patient paid for. Um, the insurance company paid a bit of it too. And now it's going to be thrown away. Whereas if it were buy and bill, um, that, that drug doesn't have any patient's name on it and it can be reused for someone else. That is so interesting. So, you know, just I got to keep it simple for me since I, you know, you, you're an expert in my eyes compared <laughs> to what I know about the infusion center landscape. But when it, so, what it sounds like you're saying is, you know, at the outset, we said, what's one of the biggest challenges facing the infusion center? And it sounds like to me, you're saying there's healthcare policies that are coming out. They are affecting the way patients, what patients can receive, what their out-of-pocket cost is, whether or not they can even receive the drugs. And then on the provider side, it affects whether or not they can do get the drugs via specialty pharmacy or have a buy and bill scenario where they buy from a manufacturer, administer the drug, and then bill. So it's, it's impacting everybody. It's impacting the provider financially. It's impacting the patient as far as just quality of life in general. Um, so this is a big deal, and the insurance companies are are making providers jump through a lot of hoops to get this stuff done. And I've been in enough infusion centers and talked to enough office managers to know that it's impossible to stay on top of all of the changes. And every payer does it a little differently. And you know, it's it's almost like if you don't have somebody just full time staying up to date with what the changes are and how to navigate these changes, you're just going to get left behind. 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, there's another piece for providers. It's it's not just financial, um, for sure. But you know, providers went into their fields to communicate with patients, learn about their situation, and come up with a plan, right, to help that patient get back to their their optimal health state. Um, the the sort of buzzword is share words are shared decision making. So the patient and the provider get together and come up with a plan. Um, and you know, study after study shows that that is essential for. I mean, you know, skipping many steps that's essential for better patient outcomes. But um, to kind of walk through it step by step, if they make the plan together, then patients are more likely to stick to the plan, which just just makes sense. Any parent will tell you <laughs> a, a plan you come up with with your child, they're more likely to follow it, right? So they come up with a plan together, they stick to the, the plan, the treatment plan, and that is a prerequisite for having that therapy work, right? The patient has to take it for it to work. Um, for the treatment to be effective in controlling their disease and controlling their symptoms, preventing progression, then they need to actually stick with it like they're supposed to. Um, and then that is going to contribute to better health outcomes, you know, a decreased economic burden of disease. So if the patient and provider aren't able to make that plan together because the insurance company says, well, no, I, I understand you wanted to go with this treatment, but you have to try these six first, then, you know, what are what's the likelihood that patient is going to adhere to the treatment, um, that it's going to be effective, it's going to control the disease, it's going to provide for better outcomes. It It, it just doesn't makes sense. Yeah. It's like, it's like at some point in the process, a long time ago, people making decisions to, to, that for these insurance companies and for the entire industry were way more concerned about the bottom line uh, instead of the pay. I mean, it just makes no sense. There's no common sense in that. I mean, it's the same, like if I want to get a roof put on my house, I don't want the insurance company deciding how the roofer does the best job possible. Right. I want the roofer, the expert in the industry saying, here's how to keep a roof over your head that doesn't leak. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm going to make sure you get the best roof possible. I don't want the insurance company, some person you know, sitting behind a desk that's never hammered a shingle in their life making decisions exactly. on my behalf. Exactly. So but we- it's just crazy. Exactly, but we allow that with you know healthcare. We have we have insurance companies sort of practicing medicine, so to speak, instead of the provider who's sitting there or the you know for your example the roofer who's looking at the roof, <laughs> make should make the decision right, not the person who's you know states away who's looking at I guess facts and figures instead of the actual situation. Well, what I like about this is, I mean, we're dealing with something that's it's it's largely idealistic, but it's so practical. I mean, you gave real, you're giving real scenarios of how patients are impacted, providers are impacted because they, I mean, you, you go to medical school because you want to help people. <laughs> you want to practice medicine. You want to practice medicine. I, don't, I think about my grandfather. I have my grandfather who's passed away, but he was the founding physician in a place called Bedford, Virginia. And most people have never even heard of Bedford, Virginia, unless they read the book Bedford Boys which is about guys who died in the war, but it's a tiny little town. He was the founding physician. And he told me stories of when he got started, he actually went to some patients' houses on horseback. Oh my goodness. I'm talking people living way up in the mountains in Virginia. And so that's, but that's what it was all about. It was about, he was the founding physician and I'd go visit my grandparents every summer and everybody I would meet would say, oh, Dr. McCabe, Dr. McCabe, and who's this? Is this your guy? And he knew everybody because he delivered everybody's baby. <laughs> he took care of everybody. And uh, 
And it was awesome because he was his whole deal was bedside manner and getting to know people and giving them exactly what they needed. And that and, and it's like that's almost like a dream world now. Oh, for sure. And, and I, I don't think that's probably any different than you know, today's providers. It's just that your grandfather had the ability to do that. You know, he had the he didn't have these restrictions on what he could and couldn't do. Nobody said, well, no, you can't ride your horse into the mountains to see the patients. You're going to have to, whatever, walk or something, crawl. You know, no one was was dictating how he could do what he wanted, how he could practice. That's such a good point. Well, I, I love what you guys are doing, and I love the fact that, you, I mean, you guys are a big deal. And Brian is up in Washington repeatedly, and you guys are – really pushing for positive changes in this in this landscape and and it shows and so so for so for people who want to take action people who want to be a part of the winning side of this people want to be part of positive change in this in this situation what can they do i mean again going back to it i I guarantee there's people listening right now that go yeah but it's just little old me and my little old practice i mean what what can people do today so they can sign up for our newsletters, um, our emails. That way they'll be aware of um, current initiatives, current issues that maybe there's a, a letter they can sign on to. Um, you know, they can get as involved as they'd like to, but um, the easiest thing a lot of times is just patient stories or even provider stories about their patients are so powerful. Um, you know, we need those stories and we love getting those stories. Um, so if a patient, you know, the idea of writing a letter to a legislator is a little bit intimidating, um, you know, send an email to advocacy at infusioncenter.org and, and share your story of how, maybe why you love your infusion center and why it's so important that, you know, you're still able to have access to it. Or maybe, um, you know, it's a, a less happy story about what happened when some utilization management strategy impacted you. Um, you know, impacted your ability to get the care you need and, and the consequences of that. Um, any any real world way we can bring a, the human element to these um, health policies is is really helpful. You know, I think that's so great because when you share real life stories, it has a powerful. Um, you, you can you can garner a powerful emotional response from the person who hears that story. And I think about I think about that documentary, Mister Ro- on Mister Rogers. And there's a there's a point in that documentary where he goes before Congress to get funding for PBS, and. He has the guy that he goes before that's the, I guess that's the key decision maker on the panel is just known for saying no to different areas of public funding. Have you seen this documentary? I haven't. Oh gosh, it's incredible. I mean, I so I watched this on the plane coming home from an, a, a trip to meet with a, a lot of infusion center managers. I'm flying home on Southwest Airlines, like crying in my seat. <laughs> you know, it's like the person sitting next to me probably thinks I have big emotional problems or something. Right? But I'm watching this documentary. Mr. Rogers goes before this huge panel. He tries to secure $20 million in funding for PBS. The guy that, that's st- sitting up there, just e- even the look on his face says that he's not there to help, doesn't care, is just going to say no. He's like, all right, Mr. Rogers, you clearly want funding. What do you want? Just kind of get it out so we can hurry up and move on. He shares this story about this little boy that watched his program and how it helped him. And you can see the change in this guy's face as he hears this really moving story about this little kid. And the guy just sits and listens and he looks around and he he looks like he's getting choked up. And then when Mr. Rogers finishes, he goes, well, Mr. Rogers, 
looks like you just got yourself $20 million. <laughs> and I mean, I broke down. That's when I, I, I mean, I started crying in my seat, you know, and it's, it's something to see a, a grown man, six foot four sitting next to you on an airplane crying. <laughs> but thankfully I had my laptop up so they could see why I was crying. Right. But I, I think that's so powerful that you guys can communicate that to providers and fusion center operators and owners to say, share your stories. And we're going to unify the voice. We're going to amplify that. We're going to be your megaphone and we're going to take this, this unified front to key decision makers in the big world of healthcare. And we're going to actually make things happen. And you guys are doing it. So I just want to encourage anybody listening. If you haven't done so already, definitely get involved. Go to infusioncenter.org. They've got tons of, of great free resources that they've worked on and worked diligently to put together. And they are on the front lines. I mean, this is, this is not a small thing that we're talking about here. You guys are on the front lines. I already mentioned Brian going to Washington, and uh, nobody knows more about what's happening as far as policies than you guys do. So I just want to challenge anybody that if you haven't get, gotten involved, get involved. Be a part of the positive movement here, and, and real life change can occur. Absolutely. You know, we, we say we're the nation's advocacy voice, um, but, you know, we're your voice. And so we need your involvement. We need to hear what's happening to you, what's impacting you, your stories, your challenges, um, so that we can, you know, use the the collaboration that, that I say we, because I'll take credit for the last 10 years of NICA <laughs> building mm. these relationships. Um, you know, we can we can use that to really protect, preserve, expand access to infusion for patients who need them. Well, that's great. Well, everybody listening, you've heard from Katie Morgan, Director of Quality and Standards at NICA. You can connect with her on LinkedIn, and you can also just check out their website and go to the team page to see the rest of the team. And I know Reese and Brian are also putting stuff out on LinkedIn about these changes that are affecting the buy and bill situation for infusion centers. And you guys are at the, at the tip of the spear with all of this. So Katie, thanks so much for joining the show. Well, Dylan, thanks so much for having me. All right. That concludes my interview with Katie Morgan. I love what she brought to the table, especially in regard to the real life scenarios where the NICA has brought changes, gotten signatures and made some real differences in the world of the infusion for infusion centers. It's just amazing. And so if you want to learn more about that, definitely check out infusioncenter.org and you can get involved and be on the front lines of fighting the good fight for infusion centers. And also, if you want to learn about how to take your infusion center to the next level, especially as a lot of people are working remotely and go from multiple tools and multiple methods of communication and project management down to one tool that's tailor designed for infusion practice, check out weinfused.com. Head on over to our website and you can schedule a discovery call or a software demo with one of our account executives. You will be blown away at how much we infuse software will simplify your practice. Or if you're thinking about starting an infusion practice, you can have an expert looking over your shoulder and you can talk to us about consulting. We've consulted with uh, infusion centers and startups around the U.S. and help them start and grow successful infusion practices. Just go over to weinfuse.com and you can schedule that discovery call now. Thanks so much for joining us in another show. This is Dylan McCabe with the We Infuse podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode. 